Welcome to Straight Talk, Detroit's history podcast. I'm Chris Hemler. And I'm Adam Hellebuck. Today, we will be celebrating Champions Day in Detroit. Plus, we will learn why you can't just be a fan of one Detroit sports team. And why you can't just hate on one, and you know who we're talking about. Welcome to episode two of Straight Talk. Today we'll be exploring the wonderful season that Detroit teams and athletes had in 1935. And who better to talk to than Charles Avison, a native and lifelong resident of Michigan. Charles has lived all across the state. A student of history, Charles graduated from Western Michigan University with a degree in liberal history. He remains dedicated to the study of history, philosophy, and art, especially where it concerns Western civilization. Charles currently resides in Metro Detroit, where he founded and operates Diomedia Publishing and has written three books on the championships and champions of 1935. Detroit City of Champions, the story of the most important season in Detroit sports history, and Detroit City of Champions, the Players, Volumes 1 and 2. Thank you for joining us, Charles. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, a pleasure is all ours, I, I assure you. We, uh, we're, we're, we're happy that you're here uh, just a, a few days after uh, Champions Day in Detroit. And if you wouldn't mind, just describe Detroit's impressive championship year in 1935. I put a case in my book that this is the greatest season in the history of American sport. And so um, that's a pretty lofty claim. So it's got to have some uh, substance in order to, to reach that claim. And, it's, and we do have that in this case. Um, you have the rise of Joe Lewis from an unknown fighter to an international superstar in 1935. You have the Tigers, Lions, and Red Wings all win their first championships in that same season within a seven-month span. And you have a total of 33 championships from ev in every sport that one can think of, from the, having the, the world speedboat record uh, for speed on water, all the way down to the 1935 World Checkers Champions from Detroit. Yeah, again, every sport in between. You have you know, sprinters divers, weightlifters. I mean, it's just endless. Uh, women's fencing, women's doubles tennis. I just have to read down an entire list um, to do. And in my third book, I actually put down a huge list where, I, you know, just to make sure, because 33 championships in one year, that's a bold claim to make. And so like in my third book, the very final section is all it is, is listing off each champion and then putting like, like the historical evidence of each so that you can just literally go down, you know, and, and see for yourself. I mean, I, I have a timeline as well in the beginning of the second book, which just like really super easy, you know, goes through each, you know, championship and that. Yeah, 33 championships. I mean, it, that's what I'm saying. Like, are there even that many sports? Are there that many <laughs> things that you can compete for to win it? And the answer is yes. And Detroit did it all. The number one thing, especially if we're talking about using it for um, learning about the city of champions season is that the way that we perceive Detroit sports history, this is like the number one thing that I really am trying to get across. The way that sports history is usually discussed with every city is the history of the major league team, the history of the, the NFL team, and the history of the hockey teams, three different sports. You know, like what do those three sports have to do with each other? Not, not really anything. That's so, so every other city covers their sports history in three distinct topics. But Detroit is different, and this is the main thing I'm trying to get across because let, let me just backtrack a second, and I'll, and I'll kind of explain the time. 1934 is, like, as important for 1935 as the actual season itself. 1934 was the primer. And so 1934, Detroit was not a sports town. We were a baseball town. We were the home of Garwood. 
And the Red Wings were the Red Wings at that point, but they were, I mean, the, mo- the majority of the fans who used to come to watch Red Wings games were fans from Windsor. They were Canadian fans who used to come to watch the Red Wings get beat by whatever Canadian team was playing them. And so the Red Wings were not the Red Wings the way that we know them today. And so it was into this moment that, that this, in 1934, Joe Lewis just emerged from the amateur ranks and he was beginning his ascent, but still nobody knew who he was. And then in 1934, prior to 1934, at the end of 1933, the Tigers were in a, a horrific state. The, in 1933, their attendance was, was the worst it had been since 1907. It was, it was, their, their attendance was, was dreadful. There was questions about the Tigers and even even potential for survival because of how bad their attendance was. And so the Tigers went out and they made this huge gamble. They, they went out and the, the owner of the Tigers mortgaged basically everything he had so he could bring in a, a single player named Mickey Cochran, who became the catcher and manager of, of the Tigers in 1934. And in spring training of 1934, Mickey Cochran comes in and they say, you know, your standard journalistic question, hey, Mickey, how do you think the Tigers are going to do this year? And he says we're going to the world series. And they're, they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like our players are too young or too old. The, the only guys that came to the Tigers in 1934 new players were Mickey Cochran and Goose Goslin, who was thought to be an over the hill outfielder that long past his prime. But Mickey had this sense where he came in and all he said, and this is reported by, I have it in numerous quotes in all my books. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to the World Series. We're going to the World Series. And, and he made a believer out of all of his players. And when they came out in 1934, they started playing like world beaters. It was that, and they all credit, all talk about Mickey Cochran making them believe that they were not just too young. They were not too old. They were just the right age. You know, inspired by this Mickey Cochran and these Tigers, the Detroit, D- Detroit just went wild for for baseball they just went wild and the fans like went out in droves and so at that moment Detroit was going so insane for sports in Portsmouth Ohio there was a book there was an NFL team that was failing but they were only failing at the box office Portsmouth was was hammered by the Great Depression and was already a small town to begin with and so they couldn't support the the growing salaries of a very talented team um, the Portsmouth Spartans were an incredibly talented team they were always right there at the, the top of the league every single year and so, because, and, so, look, and so the NFL had long wanted a team in Detroit. In fact, they tried to establish an NFL team three times in much better economic circumstances and failed all three times. But in 1934, with the Detroit sports fans awakened to, to this like baseball renaissance, they thought, oh, this is an opportunity to bring the NFL in. This is the moment. And so they, so they transplanted this great team from Portsmouth to Detroit Rename them the, the, the something they wanted to name something along the, the same jungle theme as the Tigers. So I don't know, like the Lions. And then the top star of the Lions, whose name is Dutch Clark, to further associate with this sense of the Tigers, they build him as the NFL's Ty Cobb. And so that was the idea was like, there's a new Ty Cobb in Detroit, Tiger fans, but he doesn't play baseball, he plays football. So you got to come watch football, you see. And the Lions, in their first year, they start off the season, they won their first. 10 games and didn't give up a single point for the first seven you see like this is that's how good they were and the red wings didn't have a particularly great season in 1934 but then so in 1935 so the tigers so this is how it went down so at the end of 1934 joe lewis was ranked in the top 10 in ring magazine as far as professional boxers he was ranked number nine and then the tigers had gone to the seventh game of the world series fulfilling mickey cochran's prediction and lost and then the Lions won, as I mentioned, the first 10 games. And then they faded in the last three games to the Bears. And Bears and the Packers 
and they just barely missed out on going to the NFL championship. And the Red Wings, as I mentioned, had had a, you know, had a terrible season. But they recognized that, it, that this was, there was this major renaissance in Detroit, and so they had, this was their moment. They had to be successful in 35. And so they went out and spent tons of money. They, they mortgaged everything to get as many of these great players. Virtually their entire lineup in 1935 for the Red Wings was completely different. And what, one other fascinating element about the Red Wings, the Red Wings in, prior to 1935, they played their minor league. Their minor league team called the Olympics had won the, the, the minor league championship. And the Red Wings played the minor league team in a, in a tournament. In a, it's called the inner city tournament to decide which was the best hockey team in Detroit. And the Red Wings got beat by the minor leaguers. Okay, so, so that's when these minor league players started getting promoted to the majors. And they went out and bought some free agents and all this. So now that sets the stage for, for 1935. All right, Joe Lewis becomes a world beater. He was number one ranked boxer by the end of the year, an international superstar. Attention, please. The time, two minutes, 50 seconds, fourth round, winner is Lewis. The Tigers go to the World Series, win the World Series. Larry French is rubbing the shine off his new ball. Here we go. And next hit, Garvin, Ryan, Lions two weeks later go to the NFL championship, win the world championship. The Red Wings, they go, they, they go to the Stanley Cup Finals, win the Stanley Cup Finals. And then the, what's even incredible, even more incredible, is the day after the Red Wings win their first championship, they made all haste. They, like that night after they won the championship, they made all haste to get back to Detroit because the very next day they watched their minor leaguers, the Detroit Olympics, win their championship the very next day. So there was two professional hockey championships in Detroit within a day of each other. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Like, and so, and so at that, that Champions Day dinner, Joe Lewis was the guest of honor. Um, you had the governor of Michigan City Council of Detroit declared a holiday for this day to recognize this incredible series of events. Um, the Tigers were there. The Lions were there. The Red Wings were there. They're all shaking hands with each other. All these other champions are there. I mean, it's just this remarkable event. There's 800 fans there that could buy tickets to be part of the event. They issued a special newspaper for people to read at the party. So you have Joe Lewis, the Tigers, the Lions, Red Wings. You know, the Tigers were the big team, of course. That was the, the main thing. But having all these teams associated with the Tigers in the same breath, they're all championships now. There's this sense of now the birth of Detroit sports, that, that Detroit, you know, Detroit is not just the Tigers anymore. We've got the Lions, we got the Red Wings, and the Red Wings went on to repeat back to back in, in the very next year. And so it firmly establishes Detroit as this is this sports town. Because now let me ask the question, and this is the number one thing that I'm trying to get across. So now tell me the story of the Detroit Red Wings without involving that city of champion season. Tell me the story of the Detroit Lions without talking about anything to do with the Tigers or Red Wings. Tell me how, the, how important the Tigers were to Detroit sports and to the city in 1935 without talking about the impact that they made on the other teams. Try telling me any of these stories without involving the whole, and you cannot do it. And that's, where I'm, that's the number one point I'm trying to get at, is that the story of Detroit sports, the story of these individual teams, can no longer be told without 
being told as part of the larger city of champions story. And that's what I'm trying to get at. And what that is incumbent upon is for modern day fans, for, you know, for the, for the youth, for those that are you know hearing this story now to hold the people that are telling these stories accountable. They say, Oh, I don't, you know, this is the story of the tigers. I don't really care about the lions. Now we're like, well, you should care if you care about the tigers history because it's inaccurate if you're not talking about the larger whole for that, at least for the 1935 year. That's great. And you're obviously very passionate about this topic. Um, what kind of drew you uh, to researching Champions Day and these, and these plethora of championships? Well, the whole thing started out when I was a senior at Western. I wrote the whole story in my first book in the intro. And um, the, the whole thing started uh, when I was a, a senior at Western. And uh, history's always been my, like my, my love. You know, I've always, I studied history just as a kid all the way up through college. And uh, I went, I, I had a chance to go study at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, which is like just a huge history, like one of the, just a great, you know, experience for studying history there. And uh, when I got back from the University of Edinburgh, um, I, I was a senior at Western and I was taking a sports history class. And a few friends of mine, we were just hanging out one night and we came across this fact that said uh, it was just an obscure Detroit sports, uh, like there was a Detroit Tiger media guide, um, I think from the 70s. And it said, uh, did you know that um, not only did the Tigers win their, their championship in 1935, but the Lions and Red Wings had done that at the same, you know, had also won. And so I had no idea. I'd never heard of that before. And if you're going to write a paper, if you're going to write, spend some time on something, you might as well choose a subject that you don't know anything about because um, that's how you learn. And so I did. And so I, and so I chose this subject and I tried to write the first paper I had to write was just a two page paper and I could not find enough information to fill that two page paper. I mean, it was barely enough to just get by with a, you know, with a passing grade. And that's when I was like, I'm either, I'm either a horrible historian <laughs> because I can't find enough information for a two page paper or there's just nothing there. There's not, it's just something that's like not known about. So I, uh, I, had, I had to do a uh, thesis paper to graduate, which is like a 30-page paper to graduate from, from Western. And uh, so I chose this subject. And so I, the only way to find information was to go back to the original newspapers of 1935. And when I opened the newspapers up, it was like a whole different world. I mean, it was like City of Champions this and City of Champions that. I mean, every single day. And I, so I went from like not having enough information to like now I've got so much information that 30 pages isn't even enough. And so I just kept on like studying, like after I graduated, I just kept coming back to the subject. And the more I looked at, you know, the original thesis, like this is just, I mean, it was like a post-it note compared to what needed to be done. And so I just kept finding more and more information. And I was like, I got to write a book like this is just because I got to tell the world. And the one moment I think that I realized the gravity of what I was doing at that moment was, uh, was when I came across Champions Day in the, I was sitting in the Detroit Public Library reading countless you know microfilm articles and I came across Champions Day which was this huge party at the end of the year where all the champions were there you have this remarkable event and I'm like it was almost like a sense of like almost like a duty to get this story out because when's the next time somebody was going to be just looking through these microfilm looking and find this Champions Day you know who you know like would anybody ever have found you know go back and find it themselves so it was almost like a sense of uh duty like a sense of like almost like a sense of responsibility I felt because I am a Detroit sports fan and uh, that's really how it morphed and you know it evolved and you know the, the, I think the bigger thing was is that when I tried to, to bring the story out initially with the first book 
it seemed like the, the main newspapers, the teams, it's just there was like a lack of interest. There was like, okay, great, there was this, this year, but like, you know, that happened a long time ago. And why should we care? And it's, that's why I'm like, well, this is like the birth of Detroit sports. This is where it all begins. Like all these teams, this is where the beginning for all these teams winning their first championships. And the fans all were just incredibly excited about it. This is like where it all begins. So to me, it was, you know, this sort of doors getting shut in my face for, for, for bringing the story back. And, and that just, somebody shuts the door in my face. It makes me just strap on bigger boots to kick them in. You know, so I'd be more excited to try to bring it back. It's almost like a, a quest, I guess you could say. No, that's great. I mean, you know, like you said, like digging deep into, uh, into this year of champions. It's funny you mentioned the banquet. What really struck me in doing some research, because I, I really didn't know anything about Champions Day before, um, before yeah, no Chris one. had mentioned it. Yeah. And, and just the idea, the Windsor Daily Star talked about that banquet and said, there were no long drawn out speeches to harass listeners or lengthy yeah. ceremonies to annoy the athletes themselves. I said, yes. boy, we could, we could really use some of that today. Well, uh, <laughs> I, that's why, you know, yeah, that's a great, that's a great little point. Cause they, cause the, the, the interesting thing was that newspapers back in the 1930s, they were, they, they, it was a totally different experience. Some of these journalists, some of these newspapers, there's so much that can be learned from not just newspapers, but history in general, like things from the past that can be used for modern day benefit. And that newspapers, they're, the wit that they used to have, like the, they used to like make fun of each other's reporters in the same newspaper. They would have like an ongoing, like, you know, like a, it would be a joke, but it was almost like a feud that they would like they would these guys would have like an escalating feud where they were looking for ways to get laughter out of their, you know, another reporter from the same newspaper. They just really, really had a sense of humor back then. And you just you hit the nail right on the head with that, too, where they're like, yeah, there's no long drawn out reports you know, or, or speeches. That's that, that's great. So base, so kind of as you mentioned, you know, with all these championships in 1935, um, which do you kind of find the most notable? Um, and and why? See, that's a that's that's a tough question. Um, there, it's just it's there's so many. Each one on their own merits is is just, in, in my opinion, incredible. They all had their own like obstacles to achieve. I think Joe Lewis emerged as my favorite athlete of all time, but my favorite story is Gar Wood, the speedball racer. His is just absolutely incredible. I mean, Gar the Gar Wood story is just there's the speedball races on the Detroit River, and that's just become like an annual event. I mean, like. You know, they're like, yeah, you know, another year, speedball racer on the river, you know. But the interesting thing is, is that that wasn't always the case. Back in the early 1900s, you, the way that it worked was there was two main trophies. You had the Gold Cup, which was the championship for, like, American speedball racing. And then you had the Harmsworth Trophy, which is the international speedball racing trophy. And so that the rules back then stipulated that whoever, whoever won that particular trophy would defend that trophy the next year on their home river. And so for the first like 20 years of the 20th century, like one year was in Chicago, another year was in New York, the Harmsworth Trophy would be in like, it would be in England. I mean, it was just all over the place. But Garwood was so dominant at speedball racing that the race just became every single year on the Detroit River. And it just, and Detroit just became synonymous with, with speedball racing just because of his dominance. And just a, another little pearl that I think is interesting is that, have you ever heard of the Harmsworth Trophy? I mean, no. nobody's, it's, it doesn't no. exist. It doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. And the, and the reason why is because Garwood was so dominant at winning that trophy every single year that nobody challenged for it anymore. I mean, that's just, that, oh, that's wow. so, imagine if the New York, New York Yankees won the World Series like 60 years in a row. 
like nobody would it just be lose all meaning right there'd be mm -hmm. no nobody would care about it anymore they'd like seek to like start a different thing because this it just is not even fun anymore and that's what happened <laughs> like that's how dominant he was and the stuff that he had to go through like he had to he had to go up against all these like entire governments trying to take away try to win this supremacy on water and they could not do it he was that he was just that amazing so wow. so yeah yeah those are my two like you know, my favorite athlete my favorite story but there's a million i almost feel bad about picking favorites because there's so many um great stories that are in this and so many great athletes in that that's great did yeah. did garwood's kind of dominance in the in the in the speedboat racing did that translate to huge popularity in detroit for the sport yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was uh, um, that. That's kind of ties into my favorite, you know, elements of the story is that uh, you had, especially for some of these big races, where the entire government of England, you know, they were using their um, the, the the naval ministry to put together because at the time England had uh, there was a trophy for for airplane design, which was called the Schneider Trophy, the Schneider Cup, I think it was called, and uh, and also there was the world record for speed on land, and the, in England the English racers, English companies own both of those. They had the Schneider and they had the land, the record for speed on land. So all they needed to complete the air, land and sea supremacy was the Harmsworth trophy. So it was the jewel in the, you know, in the, in their, in their championship mantle that they coveted beyond you can even imagine. And so they spent incredible sums of money to try to win this. And, and so as a result, it became like Detroit versus England, you know, I mean, it was that, that's what it was like, you know, and so, it, you know, of course, Detroiters would be totally wrapped up in that. And so, yeah, so they were, they were saying at one point there was a million fans on the river to come down from on Canada and the U.S. sides, building massive sets of bleachers all down the riverfront. And I mean, there, there was, there's, I mean, the drama behind it, it was incredible. You had, I mean, the, the uh, Garwood's mechanic who was back in those days, you had a main driver and then you had a mechanic who operated the throttle and everything. And, the and his mechanic was pronounced dead twice and recovered, like literally pronounced legally dead two times and recovered as a result of some of these accidents and stuff that they had. I mean, it, I mean, and then there's some races where like, they're like the changes that they're, you know, each like some races where they're like the entire million people are waiting because the, the, something happened to the boat the night before or something they needed to make an adjustment that they'd like take the entire engine apart, rebuild it like within six hours or something. And so, you, so you'd have these situations where the, there's a million people on the river, everybody's looking down on one end of the river waiting for Garwood to come out, you know, and they're just going, can he make it? You know, that's like say the, the, the drama behind it and the, you can, you know, the putting yourself in the time. If you ever want to read an incredible story about Garwood, like, you know, I, I, I have an entire section in my book, of course, um, but a lot of my my work is based off a book called Speedboat Kings, which is like, oh my God, it's one of the greatest, it's one of just the greatest history books I've ever read, but in particular this subject, because the, the writer, the author of the book was actually, I believe he was the, um, he was the secretary for the Detroit Boat Club, but he was, I mean, he was there for everything. He was there when Garwood was, was drawn on a piece of chalk on his drive, you know, on his in his living room floor about how they're going to build the next boat and all this. I mean, he was there for everything, and so his story is just like it's incredible. But it's it's tough to find. It's a it's a rare book, and I, th I think somebody needs to actually republish it because the copy I have it cost me a hundred dollars to get the to get a copy of that book. But it's something that should be almost like essential reading for for detroit sports fans that so yeah i, I had yeah. no idea i had no idea that speed boating was was that popular oh, 
back then. It was then. huge. It was huge. That's... Well, back in the back in the twenties and thirties, it was a different age in Detroit. I mean, be, back in the especially the twenties and thirties, it was. And that's what I like to say that about the city of Champion season how how, how valuable it was because before nineteen thirty five, you had the Detroit Tigers who had been to the had been to the World Series in 1907, 1908, and nineteen oh nine. But they hadn't done anything since then. This was the the dyna, the era of the Yankees. The, you know, the Tigers were second tier, second fiddle teams of the Yankees. And then you had speedball racing. And besides that, the Red Wings didn't come into Detroit. I mean, the, the hockey didn't come to Detroit until 1926. Mm-hmm. And they were the team was renamed three times in five years because hockey just wasn't popular. And then the Lions, there was no the Lions came up came in in 1934 because of the success of the Tigers. So there was there was no NFL, there was no NHL, at least as far as like captivating the interests of fans. So Detroit in the 20s and 30s was really it was a baseball town, and it was and, and it was also a speedboating town. Those were the two main things. So every time Garwood did something, it was massive. I mean, he was a star among stars in that time. That's that's wild. Um, even though Garwood stopped racing in 1933, it's amazing to see in 1935 he's still holding the world speed record for powerboat racing, um, and that his popularity is is really beyond measure. Uh, it really makes sense why he would figure prominently in the story of the city of champions. Is there a Garwood Street? The the only thing that there is for Garwood is um, is in uh, Algonac. There's a Garwood. There's a uh, the Garwood Historical Museum, which is like my Graceland. That's like where I go to like. <laughs> You know, there's like people like Elvis has Graceland in Tennessee, but Graceland, that's like, you know, but that's, but that's like my Mecca. Like, it, like that's the, and if you ever have a chance to get out to Algonac for the, for um, the Garwood museum, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, I mean, they've got some really good stuff there. Yeah. That's and I mean, also that's cool about Algonac is they, is that that was like the capital of speedboat race. Like that's where they used to build the boats and uh, a lot of them, that's where Chris Smith and all them used to, that was like the capital of speedboat racing in the early days. And so you actually, on any summer day in Algonac, you see wood speedboats going up and down the river all day long. So it's like a nostalgia speedboat racer. It's like, just like I say, it's like holy ground. <laughs> yeah. We've talked a, a little bit about, you know, about Detroit uh, during the time period. And I think one thing that is even more remarkable when we think about this championship year is that we're in the middle of the Great Depression. And so Detroit itself was hit almost twice as hard in terms of unemployment as the rest of the, of the nation. So what did all of these championships mean for a city that was hit so hard economically in the thirties? Uh, it was, it was essential. I mean, it was, it was an essential thing. And in, in, in my books, I use quotes from all over the place to, to try to show just how important it was. They, they were well aware of how important that these sports became. The, the idea was, and one of the quotes I have, and I'm not saying it to the exact word, but the, the, the concept was they said that a lot of the problems that Detroit faced was is that people were dwelling on the misery. They were dwelling on the fact that they had no jobs. They were dwelling on the fact that they had nothing, at least compared to what they had had before. And so these reporters were saying because of, because of the sports, it gave people something else to get excited about. It got them to change their mind from a constant daily reminder of how bad things were. And so when, they, you know, when you get excited about stuff, I mean, it's like the other problems just don't seem so bad because you're just not, you know, dwelling on the thing. So, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was big. It was huge. And it, plus it gave Detroit a whole new identity because before, before 1935, as I mentioned, Detroit was a second-class baseball town. They had not done anything since 1909. And they were the home of Garwood. That was it. 
But after 1935, we just had done something that no city had ever done. I mean, we just ran a clean sweep of championships and we, Detroit became the sports center of the world. I mean, we, this was something that nobody had ever done. And they, and, they, and they reveled in it. This was the city of champions. This was, you know, Detroit's home to the city of champions. You know, whenever we talk about the identity of the Motor City, the first thing we think about, Henry Ford. I think so. Yes, indeed. If the young man makes up his mind to work, there's no limit to what he can do. To be right? When you say, well, where did the Motor City concept begin? Henry Ford. Well, you know, what about the, you know, the idea of, um, you know, like Detroit music? Where did that begin? Well, you know, Motown, of course, that's where the music thing began. Gospel is, is uh, or, or soul, as it's called, is something that you feel from within and you do it spontaneously. And it is not something that you learn to do. And it is not something that you read and you do it well. You have to have a natural feeling for it. But our third major identity, which is sports and being diehard sports fans, where did that begin? Where did Detroit sports begin? You see, like, you know, some people say, oh, what happened became with Ty, Ty Cobb. Well, what about the Lions and Red Wings? Why do we, you know, Lions can be horrific every single year, provide like heartbreak on a, on a regular thing. But we go, we, but we attend these games, sell out crowds every single year. Why is that? Is there something in the water that we drink that makes us, you know, Lions fans or something? Is there something that makes us diehard sports fans? You know, every few years, Detroit's ranked as the great, as, as the number one sports capital in America. And I know that that revolves around, like, sometimes New York wins that award or whatever. It's not like, you know, it's not an like, official thing. But, but still, we, there is something in Detroit that gravitates us towards our teams, and, and we're endeared to them in a way that, some, for some reason, people can't really understand. But what I'm saying is that in 1935, these teams gave their fans something to get excited about at a time there was nothing. And it endeared these people to these teams in a way, in that way that, that, that other cities will never quite understand. And so from that time till now, that spirit, that, that, um, that feeling has been passed on through generation after generation, while the reason why has faded. For, for those who uh, don't have the book, one of the things that I, that I like most about it is kind of a balance between, you know, the primary source material that you have in there, like uh, a ton of historic photographs, which are really, really awesome. A lot of uh, reprinting of uh, newspaper articles and, and then your analysis of those. So I think it's a really, a really awesome balance of that. And one of the things that you, that you highlight is the 1936 piece uh, in the Detroit News from Harry LeDuc discussing the impact of Detroit's fans on its sports teams. And so we talked a little bit about how the sports themselves impacted the fans. Um, how important are the fans for, uh, for championship runs like 1935 as well? I mean, essential, essential. And uh, uh, it's, it, it, that's one of the reasons why I love that Harry LeDuc article is because that, again, you know, it's, it's tough to put your finger on. It's tough to describe, like, the fan. You know, what, what, you know, what is it about the fan that, is, you know, that connects them to the games and stuff like this? But his article is really spectacular. The summary of what he says is Detroit fans needed something. These people needed something to get excited about. As soon as these teams started even just playing remotely well, like they started playing somewhat good, these fans just turned out in droves. And they were just like ecstatic for every, for every, you know, for everything that happened. And, and, so, and they weren't just like, whereas a lot of cities or, or even maybe even modern day teams, there's a sense of like, 
well, you know, you're getting paid this amount of money. You better go do it. You better go do this. And back in that time, and at least for that, you know, for that moment in, in time, it was, we're with you, kid. Go out there and make it happen. You know, we're with you. You know, you can, even if you strike out, we're with you. You know, there was that concept where it was like this universal sense of support. And, and it, you can see it in, in, in championships a lot of times. Modern day, if you, when you see a championship team, you know, when they're in the playoffs and such, like the fans are really engaged with everything that's going on. You can see uh, like somebody might like flip out their back pocket and everybody's like, oh, he always does that whenever there's like, you know, two strikes. You know, like they know about the little idiosyncrasies of every single player. They're like totally in tune with everything that's going on on the field. And that's where those, that, that fan support can really come in handy because those players in the field are elevated beyond their normal athletic ability because everybody's with them. You know, there's that sense of uh, community support where they're just, they're there with them, whether they succeed or fail. And they're, you know, they're, it just, it, it's almost like a magic, really. You could say like, oh, does magic exist? Well, in this case, it, it kind of, it does because their ability to like make, basically take a regular player and turn them into a superhero because of that fan engagement, that fan excitement, um, you know, what do you call that besides like a magic? So that, that's what, that's what here, that Harry LeDuc article is so cool because he actually identifies that. He said, would those teams have played so well without these fans that are just so excited about watching them play and, you know, elevating these teams? There's a totally different feeling. If, if you're a team and you're playing in front of 500 fans, and then like imagine the Detroit Tigers in 1935, they're on the road in St. Louis. And they play in front of 500 fans in the old St. Louis Browns team that doesn't exist anymore. And then they come home to Detroit and there's 35,000 screaming lunatics that are hanging on every single word or on, on, on every single thing that they do. So you see what I'm saying? Like, it's a whole different thing. The fans being there has, you know, cre you know created a totally different um, environment. So... Yeah, and that, that article made me think of, uh, of something today. If, if you've ever been to a, a, a DCFC game, a Detroit City Football Club game, uh, those games... I not, those... but I really wanted to. I've seen, I've, I've heard that it's got that... They're, they're well worth it. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you watch, if you watch some of their away matches uh, in some of these other cities and towns, which are way bigger than Detroit, like you watch them play uh, New York and you watch them play uh, L.A., and there's nobody there. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really weird. And then you see them play uh, at Keyworth and, you know, you have six, seven, 8,000 people screaming, lighting off smoke bombs, all dressed up. Yeah. I love the smoke bomb thing. That's super, that's very, that's super cool. I love how they, you know, there's like the red smoke and all that. Like every time you see a picture of the Detroit city football club there, it's like, it looks like the fans there, they're like, you're missing out. We're having a blast. <laughs> yeah. Know, see, that's like, that's the first thing I think of every time I see a picture of them. They're doing a good job with it. I really, I'm, I, I really hope that, that that kicks off and does, um, you know, soccer is a major growing sport in this country. And I, I, I really hope that they, they keep doing, you know, take it to the next level and everything. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. There's definitely electricity in the air. And when you talked about magic, uh, it made me made me think of made me think of that going to a that's a that's a great comparison. I would I would agree just from the photos and stuff that I've seen. It, it's you know that it, it seems like it has that same kind of electricity in the games. Well, is there anything that we've missed? Is there anything that you wanted to to add or talk about? After I put the first book out, I became a magnet for like families and 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 also people that like descendants of the players and everything and people that had all kinds of incredible in fact one of the greatest acquisitions that I got in between the first book and then the second and third ones was a the, an actual newspaper from the champions day itself 
I actually wrote a story in the book about how I acquired it, how this guy donated it because his grandfather had saved it and he put it in a box. And it's just an incredible. So there's so much, there's so many different things that I came across. And, you know, when I became a magnet for the information rather than just like looking in newspapers. The next thing we're working on too, just to let you guys know, is that um, I spent a year, I spent 2017, like learning how to write screenplay and everything. So I actually wrote a screenplay for a movie based on all this too. So it's, it's a nine part mini series. So imagine like a City of Champions story told on Netflix. Think of like, I, I wrote it in a, in a format that's kind of like a band of brothers. Yeah, okay. Brothers yeah. for HBO, where it's, it's less about like all like their people's like home life and more on like the sort of the action, but you, you know, and who these people were, you know, glimpses of who each person was, you know, at, you know, whereas the action is like the, the main driving force, but I'm trying to maintain its integrity. I don't want good people turned into, you know, made it made to look like idiots or, um, you know, just because they need a bad guy or something. And well, the story you know, is epic say. enough, right? I mean, without, yeah, without changing is, it, right? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. The story it's just, there's, it's just, an, it almost writes itself. Like there's, you don't need to uh, embellish. You don't need to, to change any facts. I mean, the story is as is like your natural bad guys are right in front of you. I mean, you got the, you know, the, you know, the Chicago bears and the Packers and stuff like that. I mean, they, they hated each other back then. There's no, you don't need to embellish on anything. It's, it's got, it's gruesome. I mean, these, the, the, the hockey fights, my God, the hockey fights there. We don't, a lot of times, a lot of times when we talk about 1930 sports, we look at it like, you see these black and white grainy footage and some of the guys might look a little skinny, maybe a little small or whatever, but man, these th back then, th this was, this was an outlaw game back then. This was like a blood sport back in those days. I mean, it's like when there was, there was less teams. So everybody knew each other. Everybody had a grudge against somebody else and the newspapers hyped up those grudges and those feuds to the point where during the games, I mean, my God, man, like the Red Wings, I don't even know how many times just in 1935 when they were playing the Blackhawks that they were showering the, the ice with glass bottles. And I can't even count how many times. Okay. Like that's how many there were. They're showering the ice with glass bottles. Think about that. They, there's, if you know, you, how do you sweep up glass off of ice? <laughs> you know? uh, certainly passionate. That's what I mean. Like there was crazy <laughs> back then. God, they were rugged back then, man. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much uh, for, for your pleasure. time. Um, pleasure. I, I think we're going to probably have some, some folks who are listening to this who are now uh, excited about getting, uh, getting the books. Where can they pick up your books? Where, yeah, where, where can, can I buy where, all of them? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, DetroitCityOfChampions.com is my, is my website. Real easy to remember. So, you know, this, I was lucky to get that domain, but that's just so nobody's remembered it. So I got DetroitCityOfChampions.com, which is pretty awesome. And I also, um, the, the main stores you can buy them at is there's a store called Inspire Marketplace. And there's, and it's a, it's inside the mall. Right now there's one at 12 Oaks Mall in Novi. There's one at uh, Laurel Park in Livonia. And there's one at Partridge Creek in Clinton Township. It's, uh, it's kind of like an art store. It's worth visiting. That's sort of, it's a great little store. It's, it's got, it's almost like a year round art show inside the stores or inside the mall. I spent a lot of time actually at the Laurel Park store myself because I actually, I do help the company out, do quite a bit of stuff. So, so if anybody's ever looking to come and talk about City of Champions, you can actually find me a lot of time. Well, at least when this whole, you know, Corona thing's over, I'm, I'm actually inside the Laurel Park store quite a bit. And, and the, Detroit, the Detroit City of Champions site has a lot of great things to look at beyond just ordering or ordering the books. There's, there's tons of, of great supplemental info on there. So we really encourage everyone to check that, that site out. 
Yeah, we try. I have like a little Detroit, a city champions museum on there, a champions day museum, which, you know, there's some stuff on there and that's really been helpful too. Cause that's really been like a magnet. I've drawn in a lot of people that have different stuff. So I've gotten my hands on quite a few different pieces of information just from people doing a Google search and finding it. So I appreciate that though. I appreciate the kind words. So it's uh, do my best, you know? Well, it's great. And we, we want to thank you not just for coming on the show, but for bringing these stories to the attention of, of Detroit sports fans, because, you know, we think about, uh, you know, newspaper articles that have been written since your book has come out on the City of Champions. You have uh, the events that Detroit Historical puts on that I know that you're involved with. Uh, yep. And so who knows when, if at all, these things would have ever happened without without your digging. So we appreciate uh, yeah, your, appreciate, your role yeah. as a historian. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much yeah, for, for guys, joining us. My pleasure, guys. Stay safe. To all you guys watching, stay safe. Listen to your teachers. They, they, you know, they're good people. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what they say. <laughs> I, Chris, I, I, I never knew Detroit sports teams were so interconnected. Well, I mean, obviously, except for the Pistons, they, they don't come here until the fifties. So maybe, uh, maybe, maybe they, they still are a, a little bit separate than the rest of the teams. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how the Pistons integrate into the next, uh, the next iteration of the City of Champions. And, and, you know, who else might, you know, integrate into the next city of champions, uh, straight talk podcast. Uh, I think we're, we're going to be in the running to bring home a podcasting championship. One of these days. Is that a thing? Is podcasting championships a thing? I, well, I think we just made it one. Uh, well, listen, that, that four and a half out of five star rating on iTunes doesn't just happen. That takes hard work. <laughs> Fans in 1935 supported their teams because they needed something positive to hold on to in such a dark time. Uh, the depression, Detroit was hit so much harder, and uh, and this season came at the right time. And you know we're in a similarly tough time right now, but we don't have sports to hang on to. But I think in a way, our essential workers have really become our our champions today. Yeah, Chris, I really agree with you there. Um, you know, it's it's good, it's comforting to think about all the positive stories that we we hear uh, daily now of all the the hardworking people across you know countless professions. Uh, who keep who keep Detroit, who keep the Great Lakes region, Michigan, um, and the the whole the whole nation operational. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, we we would not be able to to be even uh, existing the way that we do right now without without them. And so, yeah, you're right. They they are they are the champions today. You know, and and you know who another champion of today is? Uh, definitely Charles Avison, our guest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and also uh, while we're talking about our champions, uh, the incredibly talented James Link, uh, who again provided music for today's podcast. Hey, you know, let us know what you'd like to hear on Straight Talk. Uh, we are open to suggestions for the Detroit and the Great Lakes Region History Podcast. Um, you can do that by sending us an email. Uh, you can send us an email to straighttalkdetroit at gmail.com. Straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. Straighttalkdetroit at gmail.com. And uh, on behalf of Chris Hemmler and me, Adam Hellebuck, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. 